I've not been at applied protective technologies for many years now. But right now, when you go into Jira and you search by reporter, I'm still the reporter who has the most tickets in the history of the company. So I found a lot of tickets. <laughs> Welcome to an episode of Roadmap, a podcast designed for aspiring product managers that wish to break into the industry. I'm Thomas Shu, student at Cal Berkeley, and your host. Today we have Clement Cow with us, who is a product manager at Blend. As always, let's start with his story. Quick warning: it's actually kind of not brief. I think the overall journey is—it、uh, was very much accidental. And so,、um, for folks,、uh, when I graduated from、uh, UC Berkeley,、uh, so also University of California Berkeley,、um, I actually double majored in business and biology. And those are not standard majors for people who want to become software product managers. So,、um, again, for context, in terms of my own journey into product management, it was very much not planned. I very much was an accidental product manager. Um, at a quick overview, basically, when I first graduated from UC Berkeley, I didn't know what to do with my double majors. So, business biology—how do you mix the two? And so I said, forget it. I'm just going to become a management consultant because by doing so, I'm going to be able to see a lot of different industries. Right.、Um, from there, I somehow accidentally became a user researcher, and we'll get into that in just a little bit more.、Um, as this accidental user researcher. I was really trying to understand how do people use software, kind of what are the problems that they face in doing so.、Um, I then moved to a different company outside of that management a consulting company, where I continued to do user research, basically to flesh out a new market segment for the business that we wanted to launch.、Um, from there, then I accidentally became a product manager,、um, basically because I really understood the user, I really understood the company, I just didn't know how to do any、uh, engineering or design. And so my company said, "We're just going to bet on you, Clement. We want you to just be a product manager because we feel that you understand the users the best."、Um, from there, I was an associate product manager,、um, became product manager, then group product manager in one and a half years. The business that I launched became larger than the entire company、um, within basically six months, and so that was a really、um, outstanding success.、Um, from there, I then moved over to Blend. Um, where I've been working on our home equity line of credit products, home equity loan products, personal loan products, and there I'm now a principal product manager. So, kind of that is my journey in a nutshell.、Uh, very much unplanned,、uh, as you can、uh, hear. A lot of it has been leaning into these roles that wasn't specifically the role that I was supposed to be doing,、um, and because of that,、um, having people really believe that I could do these other roles better,、um, and wanting me to kind of tackle、um, those areas. So yeah, so more than happy to dig into、uh, anything that you're excited to learn more about, Thomas. Clement said he accidentally broke into product management, but I have a feeling that his effort deserved more credits than that. So I asked him to share more about his journey in the early days. Jumping back to that management consulting、uh, period, basically my job had three parts. So the first part is kind of、uh, traditional management consulting, where I worked with. The company executives to decide what are our testing priorities for the year. What are the really large things that we need to de-risk and really make sure that we do test versus control, A/B test, to make sure that whatever it is that we're doing doesn't like put the entire company at risk, right?、Um, and so a lot of that was kind of、um, better understanding what are the company's strategic priorities, what is its vision, what is its roadmap, and using that to identify what the testing strategy should be. The second part was a lot more,、uh, call it. Deployments or implementation, and so a lot of it was training that company's analytics team to use our proprietary analytics platform. And one of the challenges there is it was built by PhD statisticians, but the end users are not PhD statisticians; they're marketing analysts, operations analysts, right? And so one of the things that we had to do was we had to continue to train、um, all of these users on well, how do you use the software, right? How do you make sure that you set up correctly? What does this error mean? What is it that you're trying to get done on a day-to-day -day basis? And then kind of the third part of that role was in a lot more、um, call it data pipeline or data analytics. So basically loading in that transaction data through SQL、um, so that that way we can. Actually, power our analytics platform, and so、um, starting from kind of this background, right? As a management consultant,、um, you know, I was working very, very long hours. I was probably working twelve, fourteen hours a day、um, because, you know, taking three jobs at once of you know loading in SQL plus training people how to use the software plus like working with executives takes a lot of time. And one of the things that was really problematic is that our users could not figure out. How to use the software, right? Because again, they're marketing analysts, operations analysts. They aren't PhD statisticians, and so when we said, "Oh well, here's an error," or "Oh, this is the result," I don't know how to interpret this result. I don't know how to go get this set up. What we said was, "Oh well, because you're a management consultant, you want to stay on the phone with your end user, and you really want to grow that relationship. You really want them to feel like they can trust you, etc." And so all of us, all 100 plus consultants, kind of across all of our offices, 
every day we spent three to four hours on the phone doing tech support, which I just thought this is a huge waste of time, right? Like, what if we just made the software more usable? What if we made it so that people could work through it themselves without having to pick up the phone and call us, right? And so from there, that's where it became a little bit rogue, let's say, um, where one of the things that I no longer wanted to do was I no longer wanted to just do tech support all day. I really wanted people to be able to self-serve, solve their own problems, and I figured, okay, well, if I help our, um, if I help our software team make the experience a lot more intuitive, then we're all gonna get back time, right? Like these three to four hours that I'm currently burning every day applied across more than 100 consultants across the network, if we can cut that even in half, right? Like we're getting back 200 person hours per day. This is gigantic. Let's go try to do something here. And so what I did was instead of just simply answering my customers' questions when they called me on the phone, Clement, I don't understand this setup. Clement, I'm stuck. Clement, what does this mean? I started becoming a user researcher without even knowing that this job existed, right? Because again, I was an ex-biologist, right? I did not know anything about software. I didn't know what product managers were, what designers were, what engineers were. I just wanted to understand what is the pain that you're facing? And what I did was basically they would say, oh, well, I wanted to do this, but I got to this screen and I was doing that and that's not expected. Here's what I wanted, right? I, I kept asking them these questions. Okay, well, why doesn't this make sense? What is it that you're trying to do, right? What is it, how can we make your life better? And what I started doing was I started doing all of these write-ups and I started sending them over to the software team of, hey, I just spoke with, you know, XYZ customer on ABC account and they ran into this problem where they were trying to do this, 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 right? Um, anything that you guys can do about it. And he said, oh, Clement, you know, you don't need to send us these write-ups. What you can do is you can file a JIRA ticket, right? If you file a JIRA ticket, what happens is a product manager is going to look at that ticket. They're going to prioritize it, and they're going to work with um, engineers and designers to figure out how can we build better software. I'm like, okay, cool. So I log into this totally new software I've never seen before. It's called Jira. I don't know what I'm doing. I just write the whole thing in there. And basically, I accidentally became a user researcher where I kept sending them these daily reports, essentially, of, hey, I've got this new customer who's trying to do this other thing, and this thing doesn't make sense. And the funny thing is, you know, I've, I've not been at Applied Protective Technologies for many years now. But right now, when you go into Jira and you search by reporter, I'm still the reporter who has the most tickets in the history of the company. So I found a lot of tickets. <laughs> and of course, my product managers were very displeased. They were like, why is Clement sending us so many tickets? And finally, one of them reached out and they said, Clement, it sounds like you have a lot of very vocal customers. Um, would it, could I shadow you for once and you know, understand what is it that they're trying to do? I'm like, yes, I'd love that. And so basically what happened was we started doing these pilot programs where I would have product managers um, sit down with me and with my customer basically to listen to what is it that the customer is trying to do? Why was, were they getting stuck? And we started doing these prototyping sessions, right? Well, we want to create a better user interface, right? Does this user interface make more sense? Um, what about trying to do it this way? And because we now started bringing in these marketing analysts, operations analysts to be in touch with our PhD statisticians, the next generation of our software became so much more usable, right? The great thing was that as a management consultant, one of the things that we are graded on is, you know, how high is your, you know, how much does your customer recommend you, right? And, you know, how many products do they want to sign up for and continue to work with you on? And my customers loved me because I was listening to their pains and I was making their pains solved in the software. And so they loved me. And so I rose the ranks as a management consultant and we were able to continue to create these more and more intuitive products, right? Um, where because we were really listening to how are people trying to get things done? Why is it that the way that we're trying to do it right now doesn't make sense, right? We brought in the voice of the customer into that product creation process. And so that's how I kind of went beyond. No one told me, Clement, go do this customer research. No one told me, I didn't even know that user research was a legitimate field. I just straight up didn't know. It was more that I was so frustrated with having to be on the phone for so, so long. And it's, I can solve this, right? Like, I don't need to wait for permission. I see a problem, I'm gonna go fix it, right? And because of this kind of self-starter nature, um, where I demonstrated additional value on top of my core responsibilities, my company said, oh, well, if we're getting work out of Clement for free, that's fantastic, why don't you go do that too, right? So basically, I was doing, you know, let's say uh, 60 hours a week as a consultant, and then, you know, uh, 20 to 30 hours a week as a user researcher, and continuing to grow that user research skill, right? Because I was providing all of this value to the company that they honestly didn't expect from me. And because of that, that's why um, I started getting a reputation for being really strong at user empathy, for being, you know, really thoughtful in terms of being able to extract customer pains. And so, 
that's why then some other company reached out, Movoto down in San Mateo, a real estate brokerage. They reached out saying, well, hey, Clement, you know, we've heard about you. Um, you do really great user research. We would love if you could join us and do user research for us. And originally I said, eh, I'm okay, right? Like, I don't know that much about real estate, right? Like, it's going to be fine. Um, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And I said, no, 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 Clement. We're going to make sure that you're not working 90 hours a week. You're going to be working 50 hours a week and we'll pay you 20% more. And I said, oh, well, if you're going to have me work less to be paid more, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> so that's how I moved from user research at Applied Protective Technologies into user research at Movoto. Right. And so now as a user researcher at Movoto, right, and again, given that I had this management consulting background, um, I really wanted to understand, well, how can we make sure that we're not just gathering these customer insights, but actually drive a business and make it move forward? Right. I'm not here just to do user research. I'm here to solve pain. I'm here to make people's lives better. And so, um, you know, as a user researcher, basically what Movoto needed was we're currently really, really great at working with home buyers. Right. Because. Anytime someone wants to buy a house, what do they do? They schedule an open house, right? They say, I want to talk to a real estate agent. I want to go see a house. And so right there, you know, they want to buy a house. We can pair them with a Movoto real estate agent. And then that way Movoto can monetize, right? So we were really, really good working with home buyers. But the thing that we could not figure out for the life of us is how do we work with home sellers, right? Because the thing is, when does someone want to sell their home, right? How long does that process take? And because the thing is, if you ping them too early, they're going to say, I don't want to sell my home. I just want to live here. And so this is spam. If you ping them too late, they already have a real estate agent, right? So how do you understand what their mental model is? How are they making these decisions? How do they decide that I want to sell a home? And then after they decide how I want to sell a home, how do they know what real estate agent they want to work with, right? Kind of the industry for a really long time now has been very mm, unsophisticated, let's say. So basically, um, You've probably seen this in your mailbox. You see lots and lots of these, you know, really nice little postcards or flyers where it's a real estate agent's name plastered on it saying, this house that I recently sold for whatever amount of money, you should come uh, work alongside me because I can help sell your house, right? And so everyone gets these postcards and they work only because of how much volume there is. People just keep sending out these postcards. And so they work, but they're not particularly refined, right? How do we make sure that we can position a Movoto real estate agent in front of someone who wants to sell a house um, so that that way, we're not burning all this money on all of these postcards. We're actually in a really targeted way solving for someone's pain preemptively. And so there, basically, as a user researcher, I did all of these you know, one-on-one -on -one qualitative interviews um, with potential home sellers, with people who had already sold their homes kind of all throughout the life cycle. Um, and we basically identified through, I think, 20 or 30 different qualitative interviews that in general, we thought that there was maybe about three or four different segments of home sellers. And so we said, okay, let's make this quantitatively um, robust. Let's take all of these user segments that we think we have um, and let's go ahead and survey people. So we, we did a survey of, I think, more than a thousand respondents. And from there, we crunched the data and we found, okay, so generally there are these five different psychographic segments of, um, you know, people value some things versus other things. So some people, they really want to make sure that they sell their home as quickly as possible. They're not that price sensitive. Other people, they don't care how long it takes you to sell their house. They need you to get the maximum amount of money. Um, and then other people kind of are trying to strike a balance in between. Some people want you to be very hands-on. Some people want you to be very hands-off, right? So just all of these different segments, we started understanding, okay, generally people can be bucketed this way. And so my team said, okay, good job, Clement, right? Like you have now identified the seller segments and we'll go figure out what business to make. And I said, no, 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 we're not doing this because as an ex-management consultant, I can't tell you the number of times I've come up with a proposal and then no one did the proposal. And so I don't care what you say, I'm going to go try to figure out how to make this business a reality. And so what I started doing is, again, I went rogue of, I continue to do whatever customer research they told me to go do. But for these home sellers, I said, we can't just leave this on the shelf. We can't have just commissioned the study and do nothing with it. We need to go launch a business to solve these people's pains. I've talked with so many people who are struggling to figure out how do I sell a home for a really good price in a short enough period of time, I want to go fix this. And so I did all of this, you know, um, competitive analysis based on the, the learnings that I had from school, right? Um, I started um, really trying to understand how do real estate agents think, how do sellers think, et cetera, et cetera. And basically I painted this picture to my executive team of, look, here's a business model that will work. These are the kinds of investments that you'll need to make, but the return on investment is worth it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And basically I kept pitching the executive team over and over again on, 
we need to do a business within a business. We really need to go launch this thing. Even though it's a different business model from how we're currently operating, we should go do it. And after many, many months of me repeatedly telling them that we should go do this thing, they finally said, okay, Clement, you win. We're going to go try this thing. And so now they had two options, right? As they launched this business, either they could, one, um, ask our existing product team to go tackle it, or two, try to find someone else to go tackle it. So they said, okay, existing product team, right? Everyone who's working on the home seller stuff, we've got, uh, sorry, everyone who's working on the home buyer side of the platform, we want to go after home sellers. Can anyone help us do this? And our entire product team said, absolutely not. We've got a business to run. Do not distract us. That's so our executive team said, okay, so we can't do an internal transfer. That's too bad. So we can either you know, go out and hire another product manager to go do this, but then uh, they might not really understand the user. They might not understand like what our company is up to, how our processes work, et cetera. Or we could take this user researcher called Clement and we could turn him into a product manager because he already knows the user. I mean, he's the one who researched them and he knows the business because he's literally the one who pitched us on it. And so Clement, we want you to be a product manager. And I honestly, at that time, I was very shocked that they wanted me to do that because I said, look, I don't know the first thing about engineering. I don't know the first thing about design. You're making the wrong choice, right? Like I remember that first time my CEO sat me down in a room with him. He said, Clement, I want you to be a product manager. And I fought him so hard. I fought him for 45 minutes saying, no, you're making the wrong choice. You need to find someone else. I don't have the experience. You're making the wrong call. And he said, no, Clement, I trust you. You understand the business. You understand the user. I want you to be the product manager. And I kept fighting him. And we fought for, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks. And then we finally came to uh, an agreement where he said, okay, Clement, it's pretty clear that you're most worried about working alongside engineers and designers because you haven't worked with them before. And I understand that. So let's de-risk this. I'm going to have you shadow an engineer for a whole week and you're going to do nothing but just sit alongside this engineer. And then for the second week, I'm then going to have you sit down with a designer and you're just going to sit with the designer. You're going to absorb all their knowledge. And then we're going to turn you into a product manager. Okay. I said, fine, we'll give this a shot. So that's what happened. And so that's how I finally started understanding, oh, so this is what a pull request is. This is what a code review is. This is how you merge code. These are the environments. Here's how you do a rollback. Oh, this is Figma. This is Balsamic. This is, you know, kerneling. This is font sizes, whatever, whatever. And so basically I just tried to grab as much knowledge into my head as I could. Um, and they said after the end of two weeks, okay, Clement, good luck. You're an associate product manager. Go launch this new business that we've never done before. Um, have fun. And I indeed did have fun. Um, they did actually make the right call in retrospect because basically within six months, we had grown that new business to be larger than that existing um, home buyer business. And the reason was because we understood those seller pains so well. We had done all this research to really understand what is it that we need to do to differentiate ourselves from the rest of the market, right? We're not here just to throw people postcards. We're here to make sure that you can move on to the next step of your financial journey to get into that new house that you want. And we're gonna help you do that by selling your house at a price that makes sense for you in a time frame that makes sense for you. And so back to the original question, right? Of, you know, um, tell me about how you leaned in. I think for me, a lot of it was, I don't just want to do my job well, right? I think. Jobs are simply ways for companies to say, I've got some pain and I want to go attack this pain. Person, please take this headache away from me. I want you to go solve this pain. But what if there are more pains than the things that they told you to go do, right? You shouldn't wait for your executives or your manager or whatever to assign you to it. You should just go do it, right? Because if you see the pain and you have a thought of, I can solve this pain, why shouldn't you be the one who solves it? And so because I've been going above and beyond repeatedly, um, my teammates, regardless of if they're on the exec team, regardless of if they are in customer support or in sales or marketing or what have you, they know that I will always be doing the best on their behalf, right? I'm always gonna go above and beyond and identifying real unmet needs and then solving for those needs even if no one's staffed anyone against those needs yet, right? Basically, how can I continue to unlock positive value in the world and by doing so, grow the business and grow my own career, right? Has very much been the trend of my own career trajectory. I saw a theme of going rogue in Clement's story, and I asked him to elaborate on what he was thinking at the time. Because most entry-level folks are more worried about getting A-pluses on their first few assignments, rather than proactively looking for additional problems to solve. The way that I was thinking about it, right, is, um, you know, I need to make sure that I'm continuing to do my job well because they hired me for this job. So I need to make sure I still do this job. But 
my own happiness is reduced in doing this job because I see some unmet need and I need to go get this need solved, right? Like I just, for my own personal selfishness, I want this pain solved. And so I'm just going to go do it. It wasn't, oh, well, I'm going to go do this extra stuff because then that way I'll become a product manager. It had nothing to do with that. I didn't want to be a product manager. It was, it was more, I see a pain and I hate seeing this pain every day that no one is solving. I'm just going to go solve it because I trust myself. I know that I have the capabilities to solve it. And so I'm just going to go do it. Um, and I think kind of that self-starter nature is the same kind of self-starter nature that you see in founders and entrepreneurs, right? People who see pain and they think, the world shouldn't be this way. The world should be better than this. I'm going to go make the world this better place. And so I think one of the things that, you know, people are afraid of is, you know, oh, if I'm going to go do this other stuff, then my manager is going to say, what are you doing? And the reality is, you know, you need to think about it from the business's perspective. And then it's very clear that your manager is not going to mind. And so what do I mean by that? What I mean is when your manager hires you for some role, the reason why they hired you for that role is because they're trying to solve some pain, right? So if you are hired as an accountant, if you're hired as an engineer, if you're hired as you know a legal compliance analyst, right? No matter what it is that they hired you for, the company has some pain that they can't get solved with their current workforce, right? I need someone to go do XYZ stuff and we don't have enough people to go do this kind of XYZ stuff. So I need someone to go do it, right? But if that stuff is being done, if you make sure that that stuff continues to get done, there's no reason why they should push back against you if you go do more than what they asked for, right? If there are other pains that you go solve, they're not going to say no because to them that's free labor, right? And for you, that's free experience that you now have more than anyone else has, right? And so I think one of the things that people make a really bad mistake about is they kind of assume if I do exactly what my manager tells me to do, that's what's going to get me promoted. No, it's not. Your manager, the way that they promote people is who solves the most of my headaches, right? If you solve their headaches, they will promote you. And if you don't solve their headaches, if you're a headache, then they don't want to deal with you, right? And so the, the, the thing that I joke about, but it's very true, is at the end of the day, every job is simply a company is paying a person to solve a headache for them, right? And so if you don't have headaches, you're not doing enough. <laughs> if, and so you want to have headaches, right? Like you want to be taking on challenges because then that way the company does not need to deal with them, right? Similarly, you know, when we purchase products, right? Anytime we purchase a product, anytime we hire someone, it's because we have some headache, some unmet pain, some need that we want it, we want it solved and we're willing to pay money for it, right? And so it's the same thing for any job, right? Companies don't create jobs for you to take, right? Like they, they don't care if, if you're employed or not. They create the job because they're in pain. Oh crap, I don't know how to get this thing done with my current set of resources. I need more resources to go do this and I'm willing to pay money for it, right? Because if you think about it, making jobs for companies is honestly very difficult, right? Because now you have to go write a job description, then you have to go figure out how much to pay that person, then you have to go recruit for that person, interview that person, then when you hire them, you have to train them and then that's all work. That's so much work. But the reason why companies hire people is because they cannot solve the pain with their current workforce. They need someone to go do more, right? And so because of that, we can use that analogy to think about our own careers within a company of we are hired to solve some pain of theirs. And if we can solve even more pains of theirs, then they will naturally want to keep us. And, and so by going above and beyond, right, that's what matters more. And so one of the things that I see a lot is when people are trying to make their careers go faster or do more, they say, you know, oh, I just, I'm just going to go do whatever my manager tells me to do. I'm going to go do those things really, really, really perfectly. They become perfectionists. And it's, no, 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 no. Your manager does not care whether you do the thing perfectly or not. They care whether you solve the pain. And once you solve the pain, if you solve extra pains, then they're going to pay attention to you, right? And so the thing that I've personally found to be very valuable in my one-on-ones with managers is not just talk about, oh, here are the things that I'm doing. Here's my status report, right? Here's my progress on the thing you did. But also, by the way, what's on your mind? What are the things that are currently unsolved on your plate? And when they say, oh, well, Clement, I'm currently trying to figure out how to break into this market or Clement, I am really struggling with, you know, um, working alongside this department or Clement, you know, this customer, I don't really understand what it is they're asking for. I'll say, great. Seems like an unsolved pain. Um, would you mind if I gave it a shot? And usually they say, that would be fantastic. Thank you, Clement. I didn't even realize I could ask you to solve that pain for me. And I say, great, let me go do it. And I do it. And I'm like, Clement, you're so reliable. You always go above and beyond. I want to give you more stuff to do. And of course, if I'm going to give you more stuff to do, I'm going to promote you, obviously, right? And so when you go above and beyond in finding people's pains and solving it, 
People will hire you, they will promote you, they will buy your products. It's all about finding people's pain and solving it. That's the thing that matters, not doing the thing that they tell you to do. How did he make sure to not become one of those headaches when he tried to go above and beyond? <laughs> yeah, yeah, great question. So I think, so, so a couple of things uh, that you need to watch out for if you decide that you're going to be doing more than what people are asking you to do, right? The very first thing that you need to make sure people understand is that you are reliable. You're not just quote unquote, like when I said going rogue, I meant that jokingly, but some people actually do go rogue and they stop doing the job that they were hired to do. That is when you become a headache, right? Because you have to remember the company hired you to solve some pain. And if you stop solving that pain, they're going to get rid of you because that pain needs to be solved first. That's the one that they prioritized first, right? And so you need to demonstrate to people that you have a really strong track record of getting that thing done. And one of the things that's very helpful is say that you want to do more, right? You can always align with your team, um, whether that's your manager, whether those are your counterparts to let them know, hey, there's this other thing that I'm really interested in doing. And I realize that you might have some concerns in me doing this because you might be worried that I'm not going to go do the thing that I was originally hired to do. Don't worry, right? I will continue to make sure that this first thing gets done. And here are the different levers that we can pull to make sure that it happens, right? You want to go talk them through what the approach is for them to be able to escalate so that once you go off track, if you go off track, they know how to get it fixed. And so then that way you, you aren't a risk to them, right? So one of the things that I made very, very clear when I was doing all this user research stuff is I, I, I told my management team, the extra like user research stuff, I think of this as a volunteer job. You don't need to pay me extra for it, but I will make sure that this consulting job gets done, right? Like you brought me in as a management consultant, I'm gonna get the management consulting job done. If you see any dip in performance, if you see any slip in deadlines, et cetera, let me know immediately and I will drop everything I'm doing on the user research side to go make the management consulting side work. If you continue to see not enough results, right, feel free to escalate up to um, my manager, right? And like, let's make sure that I'm on track and doing the things that you care about the most. But otherwise, any extra free time that I have, I'm going to go do this user research stuff, right? I'm not going to sit there perfecting my consulting stuff because I've already solved enough of the consulting stuff. I'm going to go do this other user research stuff instead, right? And so as long as you make sure that you set the right expectations, that everyone understands what you're doing, why you're doing it, and how to fix it if you're going off track, then they're not gonna be as worried. The problem is when you go rogue and you don't tell people about it, that's when they start freaking out of, are you trying to do something without our knowledge, right? Like, are you not gonna maintain the job that we hired you to do? That's when the problems kick in. And so the most important part is letting people know, I'm interested in this other thing, but I will still make sure that this core thing that you hired me for, I will get it done, Let's talk through the plan of what if you find my performance unsatisfactory? How do we make sure that I continue to meet this baseline that you've set for me so that that way it is not a risk to you, it's not a cost for you, and all this extra work that I'm doing is for free, right? That is then how you make sure you eliminate that pain. Because if you just say, I'm going to go do this other stuff, I'm not going to do the original stuff, that's when you become a headache and that's when you become a risk that they then need to eliminate. And so then they will likely remove you and find someone else to go take that job instead, right? And so that's the thing that I think, you know, the, the how do I phrase this? In general, kind of the, the two things that people might not do correctly when they're trying to go above and beyond is, one, if they try to go above and beyond, but they don't maintain the core and they don't make it clear to people that they will maintain the core, don't have a plan for maintaining the core, then they will be seen as distractions and they will be eliminated, right? So you need to make sure that you make it clear to people, I will maintain this core. And that means that don't start doing the extra stuff as soon as you get hired, right? Make sure you have a track record, be doing the stuff that you're supposed to be doing for six months, eight months, whatever, right? Like really make sure that people understand you are a strong performer before you start doing other stuff. And once you start doing other stuff, make it clear that if there are problems, you will shift your attention back to the core stuff. And so that's one problem of people who don't say upfront, I'm going to do this other stuff and don't worry, I'll make sure the core is fine. The other thing that I see people do is when they go above and beyond and they go above and beyond in the same role. What do I mean by that? And so let's say that as a consultant, right, I am supposed to deliver three analyses and I say, I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm going to do four. I'm going to do five. That doesn't actually accelerate your career. That doesn't actually solve new pains. You're just being a perfectionist. And the challenge is that Every time you invest more effort into the same initiative, 
you actually get diminishing marginal returns, right? At some point in time, the extra analysis you could have done, right? Like is not that worth it versus you attacking some totally new pain that no one's going after, right? And so the thing that you wanna watch out for is you don't want to necessarily be doing more of the same stuff. You want to be leaning into other stuff that is different from your role, right? And so of course you wanna make sure that there's some adjacency to it or else you aren't, aren't gonna know what it is that you're doing. Um, but in general, right, like you want to make sure that if you're going to go above and beyond, one, you let people know that you're doing it, why you're doing it, and how they can pull you back. And two, that when you go above and beyond, you're not doing more of the same, you're actually doing something different because that's where you're going to actually go learn the new skill sets. That's where you're actually going to solve unmet headaches because you just keep attacking the same existing one that they hired you for. It's not going to really accelerate you. They're just going to say, oh, well, you're just a perfectionist, right? And so we'll just expect this higher bar of quality from you. No promotions, no additional whatever, right? Like, oh, it's pretty clear that you're just an analyst or you're just a designer or you're just a whatever I hired you for because the more stuff that you're doing is the same stuff that I hired you for. In my previous conversation with Clement, he mentioned the idea of meta-learning. I asked him to share the concept on this podcast and how it could be related to your professional career. Yeah, for sure. Um, so for folks who aren't familiar, right? So when we say something is meta, we're saying that you know, you're doing the same thing, but at a higher level of abstraction. And so one of the things that I had uh, talked about with Thomas previously is, you know, it's important to know how to learn, but it's also important to learn how to learn, right? And so I think one of the things that's really important as students right now is you're currently in an environment where the core thing that you're doing is you're learning all day, right? And it's great that you're learning about biology or you're learning about math or you're learning about finance or whatever it is that you're learning about that's good but the thing that your professors aren't going to teach you the things that your clubs aren't going to teach you is how do i learn faster how do i learn more effectively and so this is what i call meta learning learning how to learn right i think one of the things that people do a lot in college and i did this too right so this is also on me is I want to make sure that I have really good grades, right? I want to make sure that I'm a top performer. I want to be like doing all these clubs, whatever. And so the focus becomes so output oriented and I'm not, not very process oriented, right? And the problem with that is sure, you get some really great outcome, but at some point that outcome doesn't really matter, right? Like I can tell you with, you know, full honesty, no one cares about my GPA anymore, right? Like, yes, I graduated from UC Berkeley with a 3.97 in like two of the hardest majors, whatever, no one cares, right? It's more, what pains did you solve, Clement? And for the pains that you solve, right, how fast do you solve those pains? What people care about is how fast do I learn, right? And so college is the perfect place to start learning. How do I learn faster, right? Do I happen to learn better by reading, by listening, by using my hands to touch things, right? What kind of learner am I? And if there's a problem that I don't really know how to grasp, right, how do I break through that? What are the different resources that I use to move past that? How can I learn more stuff more quickly, more effectively, more in depth? Right? How do I make sure that whatever I'm learning isn't just in my head, that I actually use it? Right? I think, um, as an example, one of the things that um, I did a lot um, is, you know, as an ex-biologist, right, I was in the labs all the time, right? And so, like, you know, being at UC Berkeley's labs, right, um, I was doing things like fish dissections, right? I was doing things like um, loading data for, like, analyses, whatever. And, you know, if I had just only focused on my lab technique, I don't know that I would be a product manager today. But what I really focused on is, oh, how is it that people are setting up hypotheses? How do people actually know if this is a good hypothesis versus a bad hypothesis? Um, how do we try to figure out what the next hypothesis should be, right? So a lot of it is more that kind of meta lab work, right? Not how do I get better at dissections, but why am I doing dissections, right? What are there other approaches, right? Like, should we be sequencing genomes instead? Are there other ways in which we could try to learn about this problem? And so instead of just doing, you know, what my professors told me to do or what my, um, uh, what my uh, graduate students told me to do, a lot of it was more around, well, why are we doing it this way, right? Like, are there different ways for us to do this, right? Are there ways in which we can solve this problem more differently? And so taking the things that you're learning in class and actually trying to find a way to use it is much more valuable than simply trying to ace your tests, right? And so um, the thing that is really important, right, is um, people like to say that, you know, compound interest is really, really important, right? Because if you are growing over time, right, and that growth continues to compound on itself, someone who grows at a compound interest of 3% versus someone who grows at a compound interest of like, let's say like 1%, it almost doesn't matter what like baseline level of efficiency or baseline level of talent you have. 
compound interest is going to win at the end, right? Like the person who's learning faster is the person who's going to win, is the person who's going to deliver the most impact over time, right? And so I think one of the things that I see a lot is, you know, I will sometimes see candidates who are applying to be product managers and they'll say, oh, Clement, you know, I have 15 years of product management experience and your job description only says that you need five years. Why didn't you hire me? Right. And I'll say, well, it's not so much how much skills you have now. It's how many skills will you have by the end of the one year that I've hired you? Right. Are you going to be solving this pain? Or are you just going to be relying on your old experiences, right? Do you have that flexibility? Are you going to really dig in deep to figure out how am I going to solve this pain more effectively, right? I look for people who demonstrate that they know how to learn quickly more than someone who has a bunch of experience, right? Because a person who has a bunch of experience yeah, and just leans on that experience doesn't actually have that openness, that eagerness to continue to learn, they wind up becoming liabilities because they use old methods to tackle new problems. And many times these new problems demand new methods, right? And so the thing that I stress to college students is now is the time to experiment on how you can learn more effectively, right? Are you the kind of person who does better in reviewing your notes as soon as you're done with class or sleeping on it, right? And like doing it later. Are you the type of person who does better in terms of doing projects or in doing a bunch of um, practice tests, right? Whatever it is in terms of optimizing how you learn and retain information and figuring out how you can apply that information, that is the thing that matters in college more so than your grades, more so than your accomplishments, because that is what is going to give your career a lot of firepower in the coming years, right? People are going to be hiring based on your potential, based on your speed of learning, and less so on, you know, oh, I was like valedictorian, or oh, I was president of three different clubs. That's great, but if you know how to solve a pain, how to learn fast enough to go solve the pain, that's what people actually care about. What are some ways that a college student can show their meta-learning capability and demonstrate their exponential growth potentials? In terms of proving or demonstrating that you have this you know, meta-learning capability, right? I think a lot of that goes into this whole you know, going above and beyond type um, thinking uh, that I mentioned earlier, which is if you're trying to tackle a problem that no one else has tackled before and you made success in it, that means that you're learning, right? It means that you have speed of learning because you're doing all these things that no one else is doing, right? And so um, as an example, right, like if you are spinning up a hackathon for the very first time on campus where there wasn't a hackathon before, if you're creating a new kind of club that didn't exist before, if you are tackling a new volunteer initiative, right, you're bringing together the community to do something together, those are the kinds of things that demonstrate that you're going to be trying to learn as much as you can to make other people successful um, in a way that isn't apparent in your test scores, right? And so um, one of the things that is interesting is that leadership and uh, speed of learning are somewhat correlated. And what I mean by that is if you're leading a group of people effectively, right? You are going to go try to understand what pains they have, and you're going to go try to solve those pains. You're going to go try to coordinate and guide them all towards success together. And so a really effective leader has to be a really good meta learner. They have to be someone who is really eager to understand what are other people's pains and how do I go solve these pains, right? Um, I'm not saying that all leaders are good meta learners. And I'm not saying that all good meta learners are good leaders, but a lot of times these two concepts wind up being hand in hand, right? And so... One of the things that you know, can help you demonstrate that you can learn very quickly is to attack a problem that no one else is currently attacking, right? Um, whether it is starting your own mini bakery on campus, I'm not kidding, like that teaches you, how am I gonna spin up a business? How am I gonna deal with logistics? How am I gonna deal with supply chains? How do I deal with pricing, right? Spinning up a mini bakery is no joke. And that is a lot of stuff that most students aren't gonna know how to deal with. And so if you can say, in three months, I figured out how to start being profitable in dealing with a mini bakery, that's learnings that literally no one else has, right? And so that demonstrates that you're going above and beyond. That demonstrates that you're learning really quickly, right? And even if it fails, it's totally okay because you can talk about the things that caused it to fail and demonstrate that you are thinking thoughtfully, proactively about why it failed, right? You don't want to just go in an interview and say, oh, I tried a, a mini bakery, right? Like out of my own dorm room and it failed in four months, right? It's like, okay, why did you tell me that story, right? But if you say, look, I'm really passionate about baking. 
I started a mini bakery in my own dorm room, and in four months I decided to shut it down. And the reasons why I decided to shut it down are that one, I found out that you know, um, in terms of you know, on on campus, you know, food health procedures, I didn't fully understand it enough, and so all these are just really expensive, and I couldn't make it work. And then part two, I couldn't figure out how to aggregate demand, etc., etc. When you start talking about all these things, you're going to say, oh, even though this was clearly a failure. You very obviously learned a bunch from it, and so we want you to join us because you're the type of person who isn't scared of failure. You're the type of person who's going to go in and learn a bunch from every failure that you run into, and that's the kind of person that we need, right? And so, if you start your own initiative, worry less about if it's going to be successful or not. Worry more about what am I learning from it? Am I learning fast enough? Can I be learning even faster? That's the thing that actually matters. And you're not going to be able to force yourself to do all of this meta learning until you try to do stuff that no one else is doing, right? And so again, whether you're starting a food truck or building your own mobile app or starting your own hackathon or whatever it is, right? Do the thing that you're really excited about. Which, let's be clear, I'm pretty sure most folks aren't super passionate about reading their textbooks and preparing for tests. Let's just be real. Whatever you're passionate about, go do that and try to make it a reality. And when you do that, that is where you're going to be in that testing ground of. How do I demonstrate my meta learning? And by reflecting on those experiences, whether they're successes or failures, that's how you can prove to recruiters and hiring managers that you are thoughtful and that you're trying to figure out how to go solve these problems proactively, rather than wait for them to tell you that there's a problem. What recruiting advice does Clement have for college students? The advice that I'm going to give is counterintuitive.、Um, so、uh, take it with a grain of salt. At least the way that I think about recruiting advice, right, is recruiting advice comes in a portfolio, right? Like you want to hear a lot of different perspectives, and so I'm going to give you a perspective that most people don't tell you. Typically, on campus, people will say, "Go to as many、uh, coffee chats as you can. Go talk to as many recruiters as you can. Go to as many events as you can, etc., etc." I'm going to tell you the reverse. The thing that matters is that you demonstrate to some company for some role, I can solve this pain better than any candidate can solve this pain. I am your best solution, right? And that will then make them say, "I need to hire this person. Like this person is my best solution. I can't not hire them, right?" And so, then what I mean by that is, take some time to identify who is my target audience. What kind of organization do I want to go after for what kind of role? And reverse engineer it from there, right? Like demonstrate that you really, really understand that pain instead of just talking to a bunch of people, right? And so, as an example, right? Like let's say that you want to be a,、uh, let's say that you want to be a product manager intern, right? There are lots of lots of different kinds of product manager intern type projects. Some of them are going to be a lot more,、uh, let's say, user experience focused, right? Those are going to be like really, really design focused. Some of them are going to be really technical, right? Like let's say that you're working at Okta, right? Like in terms of identity verification or like OAuth, you're going to be way more technical, right? Some of them they're going to tell you go launch a new business that we've never launched before, right? And so that's going to be a lot more salesy, a lot more marketing, and a lot less A/B testing, optimization, etc., right? So you really need to understand. What kind of product manager intern is this company looking for? So then I can show them that I have this specific set of experiences and skills that will go solve their pain in a way that no one else can. Right? Like you don't want to be like a I'm a generic product manager because no one cares. You want to demonstrate that you're the best fit for that company for that role, and then they will pick you every single time. Right? I think the problem that happens is a lot of people say. I'm gonna go apply for 200 companies, and again, I did this too, right? I I am I am guilty. I applied for 200 companies using the same resume and the same cover letter, and I got rejected from 197 of them, right? Like it was just not fun. And the reason is because you can't use the concept of what we call expected outcome. Of oh, if I shotgun to all of these different companies, one of them is gonna pick me for sure. That's not the way that companies work. Companies don't say, oh, well, there's some minimum bar. And if you pass that minimum bar, I'm going to hire you. They simply say, "Are you the best? If you're not the best, I'm not hiring you. If you're the best, I am hiring you." It's as easy as that. And so, it matters more that you demonstrate to that one company that you are the best, so that they hire you, rather than being a little above average. Because if someone's better than you, and they will be, because they're targeting that company when you're not, that company's going to hire them and not you, right? So you don't want a shotgun. You don't want to go to a bunch of coffee chats. Go after one employer. Pick the one employer. Pick the one job. Do coffee chats with them. Understand, you know, who their colleagues are, and go learn from them. Right? Like, understand why does this company need this person? What is the skill set that they need? And let me target my resume. Let me target my cover letter to them specifically, and no one else. Right? By doing this in a really targeted fashion, you demonstrate that you have better product market fit than anyone else, 
And so that company is going to take you instead of someone else, right? So again, counterintuitive advice. Um, most people tell you to go shotgunning. I say do the opposite. Go really hyper-targeted. And you know, it's scary. It's a lot of time that you're pouring in, but because companies pick the best and they don't pick people above a minimum bar, that's why you have to be hyper-targeted instead of uh, spray and praying and try to apply to a bunch of companies. With so many verticals and companies in the tech space, how can students maximize their time to make the most out of each opportunity? Yeah, and so that's a really good question. I think really think about it more as, say, experiments, right? And so again, ex-biologists, so this is just how I think, right? Um, it doesn't need to be like an all or nothing thing, right? It's, it, it can be, you know, I'm interested in technology companies in general, specifically consumer uh, technology companies, right? So you said Uber, Lyft, Facebook, Google, right? So it's like, okay, generally I'm interested in consumer technologies. You know, maybe I'm not interested in Palantir because that's more like a government technology, whatever, right? So you say, I think I'm interested in these kinds of companies. I'm going to go pick one of them and I'm going to go chase that one really, really hard. And then the others I'll continue to shotgun or whatever, right? Like balance your portfolio so that one of them, you're doing this really deep dive experiment and kind of the others you're kind of doing more generally so that you don't have all your eggs in just a single basket. But then if the experiment proves successful, then great, you're done. Congrats, you have the offer. If the experiment proves not a success, you'll have learned something from it, right? Oh, okay. It seems like Uber's not particularly interested in me because maybe I don't understand marketplaces well enough, right? Uber is a two-sided marketplace of, um, of riders and drivers. And so maybe I should go to uh, interview for Facebook because Facebook doesn't have a marketplace. Facebook is just, you know, Facebook Messenger, et cetera, et cetera, right? More on the, on the straightforward B2C side and less on the marketplace side, right? Or maybe, oh, well, you know, I tried both Facebook and Uber and they still don't want me. So maybe I'm not that great at user experiences. Maybe I'm better at technical stuff. Maybe I'm better at data. I'm going to go try um, Okta. I'm going to go try Stripe. I'm going to go try kind of these more infrastructure oriented companies and see if they're interested in me, right? And so you can keep iterating through these different hypotheses while still aiming at like the general category. Um, and so basically then, you know, you'll want to time box it, right? So let's say I'm going to go after Google for three weeks. And if it doesn't pan out in three weeks, great. Next three weeks, now I'm going after Lyft. Great. These three weeks still didn't pan out. Now I'm going after Stripe. Another three weeks. Great. And I'm going to go after whoever. This way you get this really deep targeted learnings that you then use to iterate to try to figure out product market fit. And I think one of the things that's very difficult, but one of the things that's really important is to remember that for product market fit, you always have two levers, right? One of the levers is you pick a different market the other lever is you change yourself as a product to fit the market that you want to go after, right? So do I want to change myself to better fit this market or do I want to pick a different market? That is unfortunately a personal decision, right? So you need to choose which one you want to go do, but at least now you know specifically what is it you can do. Is it I want to go pick a different market that I want to go attack or do I want to develop my roadmap, my personal roadmap to try to shift into being a better fit for the market that I'm really interested in, right? And so, um, so kind of those are kind of the ways in which you might um, be able to dig deep into running these experiments without necessarily sacrificing that broader approach of reaching out to multiple different companies of interest. Let's check out the resources Clement has to offer. In terms of resources, um, so a couple of things. Um, at Product Manager HQ, um, I've actually written a handful of books. Um, so I've written the book called Breaking into Product Management, which you can find on Amazon and on Audible. So um, again, this goes back to the meta-learning part. You should identify whether you prefer reading a book or listening to a book. So Breaking into Product Management is the book and audiobook that I've written on how to become a product manager. Um, outside of that, I also have Excellent Execution as a Product Manager and Refining Your Product Skills. So those are more about your day-to-day uh, job um, as a product manager and less about the recruiting, less about kind of the interview skills, um, et cetera. So kind of those are the PMHQ set of resources. Um, outside of that, I actually recently started my own Patreon um, where I'm really eager to help people be able to um, become product managers. And so um, check out patreon.com slash Clement Cal. Um, to request articles from me. So I'm actively taking article requests. So if there's anything that you're really interested in learning more about from a principal product manager, more than happy to write about it. Um, I also do live classes only for people on Patreon. And so again, you can vote for your classes there. Um, and yeah, so kind of that is, uh, those are the resources that I recommend. Of course, I'm biased. Um, but outside of that, 
there are so many different communities out there. There are so many different uh, resources out there that you can use. I think um, Ken Norton is a really, really amazing writer. So check out his newsletter. Um, I know that Lenny Rachitsky, um, you know, has his own newsletter. You'll want to check him out. Um, in terms of communities, there's, uh, you know, communities like Products That Count or Mind the Product. Those are Slack communities that are really great. Um, so, you know, the great thing about us living in the internet age is just there are so many different resources out there. So whenever you hear anyone give you a recommendation, like the one you're listening to right now, take it with a grain of salt and go see what else is out there. You can always just do a quick Google search. Um, but again, I've got books on Amazon, um, Breaking into Product Management, Refining your Product Skills, Excellent Execution as a Product Manager. I also have a Patreon if you're looking for article requests or live classes. Um, outside of that, just go ahead and search Product Management Resources online and you'll find lots and lots of things that are really amazing. Next are the questions that I ask every guest. First up is a newly added one. What's your favorite consumer-facing product? My favorite consumer-facing product in terms of digital products um, is this particular um, app called Pocket. And so um, Pocket is basically um, it is a Chrome extension that lets you um, save an article link and then basically it downloads it offline on your phone. So then that way, then you can read anything that you've downloaded, um, even if you're on a plane, right? And so, you know, it has enabled me to learn so much more. Again, this goes back to the theme of meta-learning, of the more I can use my time to learn about things, whether it is how do people write really compelling things or how do people understand these different industries, right? Like, I love reading how other people write their articles because I'm an article writer myself. And so being able to save, you know, hundreds and hundreds of articles and then being able to look at them offline on a plane it's just really amazing. And I think what Pocket does is they are so good at making things invisible. And what do I mean by that? A lot of times people say, I want to build a product that delights people, you know, has a lot of confetti, has a lot of congratulations, whatever. Pocket is silent. And so basically, you know, if you're on some page and you just click the, um, you just click the Chrome extension button, it just saves. If you right click and you hit save to Pocket, it just saves. And then kind of on your phone, it just automatically downloads it without you having to do anything. And it's just, it's so seamless. It removes all of these pains from the user that the user just never needs to think about in terms of, you know, I want to make sure that I can read these articles whenever I want. And so they do a really amazing job of hiding all of those technical difficulties and all of these components from you. It's just so that's super smooth and super silent. So um, my, I'm a really, really big fan of Pocket as a consumer product for sure. What mediocre superpower do you wish to have? That's a fun question. Um, let me think. I think, um, and I don't know that this is mediocre because I think every college student wants this one. If we didn't need to sleep, that'd be fantastic, right? Then we could pull all-nighters all the time, whatever. I don't think that's a mediocre superpower though. So I'm going to pick a different one. Um, so one of the things that's actually very frustrating is, you know, as we've all moved towards, you know, um, kind of sheltering in place during the pandemic, we all have all these like package deliveries. And so I have so many cardboard boxes. I wish I had the power to just automatically flatten these cardboard boxes so that they would just fit in my recycling bin. Cause right now I have to like chop them up and like fold them in whatever to get them into the recycling bin. So if I could just magically turn cardboard into being able to fit into my recycling bin, that would be fantastic. It'd be incredibly mediocre, but make my life so much better. Where can you find Clement on the internet? Um, so you can always find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm one of maybe three different Clement Cals, so it uh, shouldn't be too, too hard to find me. Um, you can always find my blog at productmanagerhq.com, and you can always see what I'm up to at patreon.com slash clementcal um, for any of the projects and things that I'm kicking off. Um, so yeah, again, you know, really, really uh, humbled and excited to uh, be on the show today, so thanks so much for having me. For the ones listening, Thank you so much for tuning in with us. The books and resources mentioned in the episode will be attached in the show notes on the landing page. Feel free to check it out, subscribe, or leave a comment so that I can improve and produce better content for you. All right, listeners, thank you so much. See you next time.